All right, Luke 21, grab your Bibles, pull them out. We're going to be going through some stuff today. There's a, a, a fun, exciting passage that we're going to tackle, 33 verses this morning. We are currently nearing the end of our journey through the Gospel of Luke. We are in the last week of Jesus' life, and Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He's been teaching in the temple. Last week, Jesus described the teachers of the law as the kind of people who had big heads and wore big clothes and went to big banquets and really liked it when people made a big fuss about them. And then he describes this not-so-big widow who puts in two meager copper coins into the temple treasury and the message um, from Jesus to his listeners is the things that often impress us as human beings in the world are not always the things that impress the God of heaven. But the disciples don't seem to get the message. And so immediately following this incident, they have some commentary to add. They have some thoughts. And we jump in at verse 5. Some of Jesus' disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. See, this section, this whole passage of Scripture begins with Jesus' disciples commenting on the majesty and the beauty of the temple. And this makes sense if you know anything about the temple because it truly was something to behold. If you know anything about uh, history and specifically biblical history, this is actually temple number two for the Jews. Temple number one was built by King David and his son Solomon. That temple was destroyed About 600 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, the Babylonians came in and completely wiped out that temple. It was marginally restored by uh, a few Jews later on, but never really fully to its, its original splendor. But then, 20 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, King Herod the Great decides that he's going to undertake rebuilding and restoring the temple again. This is now temple number two, Herod's temple. And Herod makes the decision that he is going to make temple two even greater than temple one. Even more majestic than King David and King Solomon's temple. And the first thing he does is he expanded the footprint upon which the temple would sit. The total property, the total walled-in property of Herod's temple, the temple of Jesus' day, was 400 yards by 500 yards. 400 football fields. No, four football fields, thank you. That would have been huge. I'm I'm, I'm really wanting you guys to grasp how big it was. Four football fields, thank you for helping me with simple math, by five football fields. So it's a pretty... Massive structure. The building itself on those grounds was made with white stones, some of which historians tell us were 8 feet tall, 9 feet wide, and 65 feet long. Think about that for a minute. Think about stones of that size in an era where they didn't have, you know, front loaders and dump trucks and cranes and heavy duty machinery. This is a massive feat. The first century historian uh, Josephus writes that the whiteness of the stones was such that from a distance the temple appeared to be a snow-clad mountain. It was such an enormous, immense structure that it rivaled even the mountains. It was adorned with gold plates and doors. There were fine linen, linen tapestries 
clusters of grapes composed of precious metals. It was said that in the first century, the temple, when it was finally completed, would have been considered one of the seven great wonders of the world. This is an, a massive and utterly impressive structure. And so the disciples marvel at it. Isn't this place amazing, Jesus? But Jesus said, verse 6, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. You see, friends, this would have been a shocking statement. This would have absolutely blown the disciples' minds. Just the the physical power to, to level such a structure. Never mind the fact that it was the very center of Jewish spiritual life. And Jesus says, this place is going to get leveled. You see, friends, we are often tempted to overlook the spiritual when enamored by the physical. But Jesus never is. We are so tempted to overlook the spiritual condition of things when we're enamored by the physical condition of things. But that's never the case with God. God always sees underneath the surface. He always sees the heart. Jesus here does not see the physical majesty of the temple. Instead, he sees its spiritual poverty. And he warns the disciples not to be too impressed Not to put their faith in something that seems stable, but is actually precarious. Something that looks secure, but is actually unsteady. He warns them, do not be tempted to rely on something that may seem to be faithful and reliable, but in reality is unfaithful and unpredictable. And right away we get the idea here that in this passage, Jesus is going to be challenging us on what we are impressed with. He's going to be challenging us on what we tend to to lean on, trust in, put our faith in and rely on. And if you're wondering, friends, how this might apply to us, since it's about a temple and a structure that's over 2,000 years old and long since gone, uh, let me ask it this way. Jesus might say to you and me, what in this world are you so impressed with physically that you might tend to overlook what it means spiritually. One place to start as you seek to answer that question, which may be kind of obscure, is the same place the disciples start with simply this question. What is it in this world that impresses you? What is it in this world that you love, that you're drawn to? What is it in this world that your heart and mind and soul consider to be beautiful and majestic and pursuit and praiseworthy? You see, we're not just talking about physical structures. We're talking about things in this world that our hearts are drawn to, that are alluring to you and me, that we find impressive. We're talking about things like careers and success and families and religion and faithfulness. We're talking about beauty and power and popularity and pleasure, the things that we find impressive and beautiful and pursuit-worthy things that we might be tempted to look at and say, man, isn't that amazing? Isn't that impressive? That is really great, isn't it, God? I'd 
like to have one of those, be one of those, pursue one of those. I'm really impressed with that. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? Jesus now answers this question. When is this temple? When is this great structure going to be destroyed? He replied, verse 8, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. Jesus is answering this question. When is this great temple, when is this great physical earthly structure that we find so impressive going to be destroyed? He's not talking yet about the end of the world. Sometimes people read this passage and they think Jesus is talking about the end of the world. He will get to some of that later, but right now he's talking about the temple. You remember when you were a kid and something bad would happen? You, you know, your brother or sister would take your toy or you'd stub your toe and you'd be extremely upset and one of your parents would say to you, calm down, it's not the end of the world. That's what Jesus is saying to us here. This is a big deal. This is a huge moment, but it's not the end of the world. And Luke wants us to make a distinction between this moment, this event in history, and the end of the world. You see, Jesus' listeners and Luke's audience, they did not make a distinction between these two things. And so Luke writes this account to tell them, hey, when Jerusalem gets leveled, when the temple's destroyed, and you all start thinking, well, I guess the end of the world is right around the corner, and then Christ doesn't come back... Don't lose faith, because that's what was happening with first century believers. They were starting to lose faith that Christ was in fact returning. And so Luke writes this account. He says, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. Then he goes on to talk about wars and uprisings, about battles between nations and earthquakes and famines and fearful events and great signs from heaven. He says, this is all going to happen. And Jesus doesn't actually give them a time. They say, when's this going to happen? And he never answers. He just says, well, before it happens, here's some other stuff that's going to happen. Here's some stuff that's going to happen before the big event. And what Jesus talks about is actually recorded in history. He describes this event called the First Jewish-Roman War. It's sometimes called the Great Revolt. It started in 66 AD when the Jews rioted and revolted and took Jerusalem back from the Romans. It ended in 70 AD when the Romans came back and absolutely leveled the place. Some things that happened during that time period were a slew of messianic claimants, a slew of people kind of rose up and said, I'm the Messiah. And another one would rise up and say, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. I'm the Savior. Follow me. I'm the one who's going to restore Israel. Know me. So what Jesus says here is there's going to be all these false uh, messiahs. Don't follow any of them. Another thing that happens is there are going to be a ton of wars and skirmishes. All these different factions within the Jewish community started to battle one another. And last but not least, there were, there were signs in the heavens. And people talked about this. They would write about this um, during this time period. Uh, the first century historian Josephus, again, says this. He writes this. So it, was, so it was when a star resembling a sword stood over the city, that's Jerusalem, and a comet which continued for a year. People are saying, look, there are even signs in the heavens. God is up to something. And Luke wants us to know, yeah, 
Jesus knew this would happen. Jesus predicts all of these things. And so Jesus says this, you're going to hear of some weird stuff going down. And that's just the beginning. That's the start of things beginning to unravel. Just as they start to get bad, these weird stuff, these weird, these weird events are going to occur. And this is why I believe Jesus is so adamant about his instruction for them during this period. And his instruction for them during this period is what applies to us as we seek to listen to Jesus' teaching during our period, during our lives. And here's what Jesus says. Do not follow after these false messiahs. Don't go chasing down these false saviors, these people who claim to bring peace and restoration and relief to your life. And Jesus has to warn about this, and here's why. Because people often, in times of pain and suffering and despair and desperation, can be so easily turned to rely on anything or anyone that promises to bring relief. You see, this is why throughout the scriptures, constantly when there's suffering or struggle or turmoil, Jesus says, keep your eyes fixed on God. Don't be led astray. Why? Because when we're suffering, when we're hurting, when we're in pain, we are desperate so often for relief. And so Jesus says, don't just go chasing after any of these promises in search of relief. And let me make this warning from the first century again practical for us. Some of you here this morning, you're in the middle of your own destruction. You're in the middle of something huge. You're in the middle of some form of devastation or despair. Maybe it's from an illness. Maybe from an addiction. Maybe there has been significant loss in your life of some kind. And in your pain and in your struggle, there will be temptation to grab a hold of anything and anything that might bring the promise of relief. You see, the problem of pain is that we desperately want it to go away and oftentimes we'll do anything to make it so. And I believe this passage wants to challenge us and encourage us and remind us and help us not to run after temporary worldly things that will only provide relief in the short term. Jesus says, do not follow them. There may be temporary relief but there will not be eternal satisfaction. So let me ask it this way. Where are you tempted to turn when things get difficult? You see, we don't have a whole lot of people running around in our world claiming to be Messiah. Come follow me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. I can save your life. I can bring relief and hope into your world. No, we don't have people saying that. But we do have a lot of things saying to us, I'll provide instant relief to your pain. I'll provide instant relief to your suffering. There are all sorts of people and promises in our world that say, struggling right now? Come over here and I can give you a break from that. Life not going the way you want? Well, just purchase this. Just consume this. Just indulge this. Just achieve this. Just... Try to look like this, and then you'll feel better. The pain will subside, and the struggle will go away. And friends, we buy it all the time. We're constantly chasing after false saviors. And so Jesus continues. But before all this, before what? 
Before this devastation and destruction that's going to come to Jerusalem. Before even that, Jesus says, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. You see, here's the great promise of Jesus. Guys, huddle up, he says. In about 30 years or so, things are going to get real ugly. The nation is going to be so persecuted by the Romans that all these groups are going to rise up in revolt and civil war will break out and eventually a national war against Rome will happen and then finally Rome will come and completely destroy the entire city including the temple. It's going to be awful. But, but, before that, you'll just have to endure suffering, betrayal, persecution, arrest and possibly death. Doesn't that sound awesome? It's going to be really bad but before that it's going to be bad too. That's the message here. You see, what Jesus describes in this moment is exactly what happens. Luke is just telling us what's going to happen in the book of Acts to the first Christians. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to suffer. They're going to be hauled off into the synagogues and put under trial before the government officials. But in the midst of their struggle, Jesus makes some promises. And I'd argue that the point of this passage isn't just to say it's bad and it's going to get worse. The point of this passage is to say, when it's bad and when it gets worse, here's how you as Christ followers can and should respond. Here's some promises you can hang on to in the midst of your struggles. Anyone got any struggles? Jesus says, here's some promises to hang on to. Here's promise one. I will give you words and wisdom. Do you hear the personal nature of that? He says, in the midst of your suffering, I will give you words and wisdom. He doesn't just say, you'll be comforted, or be comforted by this truth, or here's a a, a pithy pithy Bible verse to memorize, so that it'll help you get through it. He doesn't say that. No, he says, in the midst of your suffering, I will be with you. And friends, that's, I'd argue, what most of us need in the midst of suffering. To simply know that the God of the universe hasn't forgotten us, that he's with us. Does anyone know what the strongest bone in the human body is? Not your baby toe. Definitely not that. Strongest bone in the human body. Someone's got to know this. The femur bone. Your femur bone is the strongest bone in your body. The hardest bone to break. You have two of them. They run through your thighs. They are big, giant, strong bones. When I was a freshman in high school, my right one snapped in half. I was playing football and I got hit on the side. And instead of my knee going out, which is what should have happened, my femur bone literally snapped in half. It happened so quickly and so instantly that I did not even realize it happened. I tried to get back up on my feet and about halfway up just collapsed, looked down and saw the bone not sticking out of my skin, but sticking out in my skin. Not a good sight. Not the best day of my life so far. 
So I laid there on the football field and the coaches and players gathered around and people were kind of in a panic and I was starting to panic a little bit and they called the ambulance and the ambulance was on its way. But I'll tell you what, friends, in the midst of that moment, in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that fear, do you know who I longed to see more than anyone else in the world? I was a freshman in high school at the very height of my teenage macho-ness and all I really wanted was my mommy... That's who I wanted to see. And so, along with the ambulance, here comes my parents. And even though my mother had no medical skills or ability to mend my leg at all, just having her on the scene, just having her there with me, made everything seem better. Just having mom there made me feel like everything was going to be okay. Friends, that's... What Jesus says here. He says, in the midst of your suffering, the God of heaven and earth will be right next to you. He'll be right with you. You will not have to face it alone. And so you can make it through because he's there. Verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of the punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. This is such a fun passage. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, remember back in verse 7, the disciples said, Hey, you said the temple's going to get leveled, Jesus? When's it going to happen? What's the sign that this is going down? And now Jesus finally tells them, and here's what he says. He says, you want to know what the sign is? The sign is this. When the city's surrounded by an army... You'll know it's about to happen when the city is surrounded by an army, and that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. The Roman general Titus Vespian marched on Jerusalem, but because the city was so strong, because the walls were so, were so tall and thick, Jerusalem was a very well-protected city, not even the great Roman army could breach those walls. Not even the great Roman army could get in there after the people. And so you know what the Romans did? You know what Vespian did? He built his own wall. He built a giant earth wall around the entire city. And he said, well, we can't get in there to you. But guess what? You ain't getting out. He said, we're going to starve you to death. And the Romans set up camp and just waited. And weeks went by and months went by. And the horrors that happened in that city are literally unspeakable of in church. But eventually the city fell and the walls were breached and the temple was leveled. Josephus tells us that over a million Jews were killed in that siege and about 970,000 were sent into exile to foreign nations. In short, this was nothing less than a massacre. But again, Jesus doesn't just give us information here for information's sake. He says something to us about this event. He says this in verse 21. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country not enter the city. Now on one level, this is just kind of basic, obvious, practical advice. When you see the Romans coming to destroy the city, don't go to the city. 
right? Go to the country, go to the mountains. Don't go to the city for refuge, right? That's just good practical advice. But on another level, and Jesus is the master of teaching on multiple levels, this is spiritual advice that applies to every single generation, including us. You see, the mountains throughout the Bible are a place of finding and discovering and trusting God. You see this all throughout Scripture. And over and over again, God reveals himself to us on the mountain. This is why David says in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You see, as Jesus describes this scene, he's setting up a contrast for us. And he's saying this, when times get tough, when struggles rise up, when there is difficulty and devastation and impending doom, where will you turn? Will you turn to the city or will you turn to the mountains? Will you seek comfort and shelter and safety in the things of this world? Things in this world that promise protection and hope and safety and security? Or will you put your hope and faith and trust in God? What are you really impressed with? What are you really relying on? Where is your ultimate trust really? You see, the world will tell you, friends... All the time, you get this message, run to the city, run to the city. When trouble comes, when devastation is at your doorstep, when the Romans are on their way, run to the city. Trust in the things of this world. Trust in government to protect you. Trust in military. Trust in national security. Trust in job security for your life. Trust in your savings account. Trust in your insurance policy. Or maybe even more personal yet, trust in your abilities. Trust in your intellect. Trust in your own wit or charm or people skills or attractiveness. Those are the things you can depend on. Lean on those. Find your safety and security in those. But friends, Jesus says, if you do, if you do trust the things of this world, eventually a tragedy will come that will wipe them out. And so he says, don't put your trust in things that will eventually fall and crumble and fail you. Instead, run to the mountains. Instead, run to God. Don't run to the city. Run to the hills. Run to the Lord. Understand, friends, that he is the only one who will never let you down. He is the only one who can protect you when the Roman armies of this world come charging into your life. And let me tell you, they're coming. Every single person in this room has a Roman army that's headed their way. Maybe you've already faced a few. Maybe you haven't faced any, but someday, at some point, devastation and trouble and destruction are coming into your life and there is nothing in this world that can overcome them. I was just talking to a buddy of mine a couple weeks ago. He and his wife are on their second round of battling breast cancer that has come back. And fortunately, right now, the, she's on some medicine that seems to be holding the cancer at bay. And I was talking to him about how they're doing. And I said, hey, I, how do you feel? Are you guys on pins and needles? Are you anxious? Do you, every single time do you go to the doctor, do you kind of hold your breath and think, this could be the time, this could be the moment? And he said, no, not really. He said, here's the deal. We've gotten the worst possible news you can ever get twice. And here's what we've learned. 
You can't put your hope and trust in doctors. You can't put your ultimate hope and trust in medicine because at some point, they won't win. But every single time, friends, God has been there. That's what he told me. God's been there every time. And so no matter what happens, no matter what the news is, when that Roman army shows up at our doorstep to defeat us, we're putting our hope in the Lord. We can have peace. We can have hope. We can have calm, we can have confidence, and we can live life because our ultimate hope and faith and trust is not in the things of this world. That doesn't mean there's not fear, friends. It doesn't mean there's not stress. It doesn't mean there's not real feelings. Even Jesus expresses real feelings about this moment. He says, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. He's saying these are times that are supposed to be filled with joy. And yet they're filled with tremendous pain. This is heartbreaking, heart-wrenching stuff. Jesus doesn't say here, bury your feelings. He doesn't say fake it and put on a happy face. No, he says in the middle of your feelings, trust me. In the middle of struggle and destruction and devastation, trust me. Bring your feelings to me. Set your feelings into the context of a God who will not let a single hair on your head perish. Remember when Jesus said that? That's just a a biblical way of saying this. The God of the universe who created you and who created every single hair on your head, no matter what happens, even if your family betrays you, even if you die, he will not let a single one of your hairs perish in eternity. He's saying there's there's an eternal hope for you that goes far beyond this world that God offers. Put your hope there. All right, one last comment from this section and we'll move on. He says, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Luke here is creating a timeline for us. He's saying, Christ is going to die on the cross. He's going to raise from the the dead and there's going to be a time of persecution. Then the temple's going to be destroyed. And then there's going to be this age, this time of the Gentiles. Scholars call that the church age. Do you know what a Gentile is? Someone who's not Jewish. And so if you're here and you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. We are in the times of the Gentiles. And Jesus doesn't talk a lot about those times in this passage, but he does fast forward to the end of those times. And here's what he says. The end of the times of the Gentiles, at the end of the church age, the era that we're in, and now Jesus is talking about his second coming. Now he's talking about the end of the world. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Okay, a couple things here. Jesus starts off by referencing this Two passages from the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Two passages in verses 25 and 26. And in both these passages, God is talking about the destruction of the evil kingdoms of this world. God is talking about how someday a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace and hope will come and overtake all the evil nations on this planet. Jesus is saying this moment is on its way. And when it happens, when it goes down, just like when Rome collided with Jerusalem, there is going to be battle and terror and devastation and suffering. Why? Why will it be so hard when Jesus comes back? Why will it be so hard when when God returns to earth to restore everything? It says people will faint from terror, 
apprehensive of what is coming on the world for heavenly bodies will be shaken. You know why it's going to be so devastating? Because evil will not go silently. Evil will fight tooth and nail to the bitter end. And when the power and kingdom of God and the goodness of God and the justice and righteousness of God run up against the injustice and oppression of this world, there is going to be fallout and there is going to be damage and there are going to be casualties. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that struggle, Jesus says this, lift up your heads. Lift up your heads. Pay more notice to the God of heaven than to the circumstances around you because your redemption is drawing near. Here's what, here's what Jesus says. He says, at some point, God is coming to redeem. Do you know what it is to redeem? To redeem is to buy something back, to, to reclaim something that you've lost. And that's what Christ has come to do. When I was in middle school, I had this basketball and it was my favorite basketball. It's the very first basketball I owned, and I used it all the time. I used it on this little outdoor cement court, and so that thing was worn out. In fact, it was so thin, I think it weighed about a third of what a normal basketball is supposed to weigh, because I loved this basketball. And then when I was a freshman in high school, we moved. And somehow in that move, my basketball didn't get on the truck. And so when we moved from, from Montgomery, Alabama to Omaha, Nebraska, I arrived on the scene and my basketball was nowhere to be found. Gone. I lost my very first basketball and I was super bummed. I was really sad about this. And I know some of you don't really care, but I'm telling you, it was a heartbreaking <laughs> moment for me. And then one day, about a year later, true story, I was at a garage sale in our neighborhood and I didn't really go to garage sales all that much. And all of a sudden, guess what I spotted? My basketball, amazing. My basketball was at this garage sale in Omaha. I talked to the people. They had no idea where they got the basketball. They had no idea where it came from. And so I was able to buy it back. I was able to redeem that basketball. My basketball was finally back with its rightful owner. And that may seem cheesy to you, friends, but that's what God is in the business of doing, except for he's not missing his basketball. He's missing his kids. And so Christ comes to buy back, to pay the price, to redeem the children that have been taken from him by sin and shame and brokenness. God says, friends, the price has been paid and at some point Christ is returning to redeem us, to take back what's his and we're his. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. So don't get lulled to sleep, this passage says. Don't get fooled into putting your faith and trust and security in the things of this world. Because Christ is coming. He's coming to claim His children. And there's going to be struggle and there's going to be difficulty and it's going to... It's going to challenge you to, to veer from trusting Christ and trust the things in this world, but don't do it, Jesus says. And he tells them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all, its, and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. Friends, you know this? Uh, in the Bible, the fig tree is actually a symbol for the nation of Israel. You know, nations have symbols, right? What's the symbol for our nation, for America? 
the bald eagle, right? That's our, if you see a bald eagle, you think America. If you saw a fig tree, you'd think Israel. Now, I'd rather have a bald eagle than a fig tree, but that's what they picked, was a fig tree. And that's what the fig tree stands for. And so Jesus is saying, friends, when you see the nation of Israel start to bear fruit, start to participate in advancing the things of God, it's just a sign that summer is near. It's just a sign that the Son of Man is coming back again. And then Jesus offers this statement, and I'll close with this today. He closes with this Final encouragement. Heaven and earth will pass away, he says, but my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, that seems kind of strange to us, right? Because did you think that heaven was going to pass away? Didn't you get promised in Sunday school that heaven was going to be forever? And that it would never pass away, that heaven is eternal? It is. That's, that's still true. I'm not going to rob that from you. I'm not, I'm not taking your paradise away. Um... When Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, he's speaking to the two most eternal things in the mind of the Jewish people. See, in the Jewish person's mind, the most eternal things in the world were heaven and earth. If anything was going to last for all eternity, it was heaven and it was earth. That's why at the end of Revelation, God says there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Heaven and earth will go on forever. Heaven and earth are eternal if anything's eternal. And what does Jesus say here? He says, compared to this teaching... Heaven and earth will pass away. What's his point? He's speaking hyperbolically here. He's making a statement. He's saying, do you understand the eternal significance of this message? Do you understand the eternal significance of not putting your faith and your trust and your hope and your reliance on the things of this world, but instead trusting in the risen Christ? Do you understand that eternity is at stake here? This is a huge moment, friends. That's why he closes by saying, be careful that your hearts don't get turned away, that they get weighed down with drunkenness and anxieties of life, that you don't get focused accidentally on the things around you and the things of this world because eternity is at play. And so, friends, Jesus makes an offer here. He makes an offer to you and me. Where is your ultimate trust? Will you trust me? We not find security and hope and peace in just your circumstances and just the things of this world around you that may feel so steady and stable and secure, but friends, just like that temple can get leveled in a second. This morning, Jesus invites you again to say, my ultimate hope is in you, Lord. My faith and trust are in you, Lord. And this is no small matter. This is an eternal matter. Christ invites you to be one of his children that is redeemed, that has eternity with him to look forward to, that can make it through all the struggles and difficulties of this world because there's something greater waiting for you in Christ on the other side. And so this morning, friends, if you need to make that declaration, if you need to say, I am a Christian, I trust the death and resurrection of Jesus for my eternity, I rely not on myself or the things of this world, but on the God of heaven and earth, if you need to make that declaration this morning, come to the table. And take the bread and take the cup and declare, I don't know everything, Lord, but I do know this. I trust you and I need you and I surrender to you and I yield to you and I rely ultimately on you. 
Maybe some of you need to make that declaration again today. Maybe there's some things that you've been trusting in, that you've been leaning on, that you've been really impressed with in this world, and you need to leave those things on the table this morning and trade them in for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Something that won't get leveled, something that won't get devastated and crushed, something that will last forever. Don't miss this point. Heaven and earth will pass away, but this truth will never pass away. Not small. Huge, not impressive by worldly standards, but enormous on the eternal stage of things. So take a few minutes, consider where you're at, consider what your life is leaning on, and ask will it stand up against the Roman armies of this world? Is my trust really in Christ? And then come to the table when you're ready. Take the bread, take the cup. Let me pray and then the tables will open. Father, this morning we thank you for this heavy passage, a lot in there, God, but the eternal significance is huge. And so I pray, Lord, for anyone this morning who is maybe on the fence of surrendering their life to you, of yielding to you, of trusting in you. I pray for those of us, God, who have done that and yet still struggle to rely on ourselves or the things that we can touch and feel and taste around us. God, we want to lean on you. We want to trust you. We want to know the eternal security of what it means to follow you. So thank you for your cross. Thank you for paying the price to redeem us and buy us back to yourself. Not through anything we've done, not through our work, but only through what you did. And we declare that today together at the table. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.